Well, great. If you are here, then you are up for the strange new world, uh, not the biblical theology of, uh, of missions. And hopefully you have found Truman's book um, and these equipping sessions helpful. Uh, tonight we'll take another step deeper into the, the cesspool of where our culture currently uh, is at, and if you are are new, this is the order that we are are going uh, going through the uh, the book, the Strange New World by by Carl Truman. I gave an introduction, then Mark Hager came and did the Authority of Self, uh, and then the Absence of Morals. Tim Oshera uh, did that last time, and then tonight we're going to talk about the absolutism of sex, and you see that title and you say, what, what does that mean? You'll find out uh, this evening. That, that's what, uh, what we're working on. The goal of doing this is to explain how our society has turned from objective truth that was once found in a, an external fixed source like the Bible or even reason. Um, prior to modernism, uh, there was the, if you kind of want to look at human existence, there's the pre-modern time, then there's the, the modern time around the Enlightenment, where before everybody believed in God, believed in a bunch of gods, believed that there was a supernatural and a natural. Then naturalism came along. Uh, modernism, which was, no, there's no supernatural. It's all logic, it's all science, it's all what we can figure out. Humanism uh, lasted for a couple hundred years, so you have pre-modern times, then modernism, and now you've probably heard ad nauseum post-modernism, meaning we're past the modern era. So now today, we're in pre-modern times, you know, there's a God, and then there's the natural world. There's things that you can learn from the natural world, their absolute natural laws, and then their supernatural laws. Modernism comes along, kind of X's out the supernatural realm. There's only what's provable, what's natural. Postmodernism comes along and says they both have failed. So we're going to X them both out. Supernatural doesn't matter. Natural doesn't matter. Modernism's failed us. So your truth, my truth, there is no such thing. As truth, you probably know that you've heard about postmodernism for for a while. You may be grappling though with how is how did this happen, right? So this is not just postmodernism. This is rabid, uh, crazy, illogical, uh, and very sexualized. Everything is about is about sex, gender. Um, orientation, those kinds of things. Well, I'm going to trace for you tonight how that process happened and then how it moved from there into into politics. Our society turned from objective truth, like a fixed external source, to inward subjective authorities in this ever-changing cauldron of human feelings, which is what Mark went over for you and then with you and then and then Tim. And then that turned in a sexualized direction. So we're going to talk about how self, or how sex became the definition of self, and then tonight how politics became centered on 
on sex. Um, That's a topic I've been assigned in chapter four, sexualizing psychology and politicizing sex. So I'm not against sex, but psychology and politics are not that fun of topics, but that's what I was dealt, and so we'll be faithful uh, to that. It's where the book helps us. Truman helps us to to take a leap from self to sex and then from sex to politics. And I, and I want to begin by showing you a video clip that is very disturbing. Um, I don't know what's coming into your mind, but the video clip, this is disturbing, okay? Um, and I want to show you this video that hopefully will put this chapter into, into some kind of perspective. So we'll see how the sound does on this. This is a recent, it's only about a minute and a half long. Here you are. You missed our royal ball. We met the most amazing princess. But they ran away, and all they left behind was this. Everyone, there's something I need to tell you. The princess who came to your ball tonight was me. I'm Gonzarella. But Gonzo, why didn't Vu tell us? Because you all expected me to look a certain way. I don't want you to be upset with me, but I don't want to do things just because that's the way they've always been done either. I want to be me. Oh, Gonzo, we're sorry. It wasn't very nice of us to tell you what to wear to our ball. You're our friend, and we love you any way you are. Yeah, of course we do. I say, we get rid of this old royal handbook and make a better one. And in our new handbook, everyone can come to the ball dressed however they like. I do not think that I've ever shown Miss Piggy from the pulpit, ever. <laughs> but did you, did you catch the agenda? Um, throw away the, the old manual and make our own, our own where everyone can be however they want to be. I could have shown you Peppa Pig, which just recently introduced their... The first lesbian couple, I live with my mummy and my other mummy, or I could have shown you Doc McStuffins or anything else, a host of others. And you might be asking the question, how could I do that to you right before dinner or right after dinner? Or why would I show you that? Why put so much effort in indoctrinating children as young as four and five years old to throw off authority because that's what that video was all about and to make the feelings inside the new ruler to write your own manual and even use a sexual construct like gender expression as the example for for that that kind of rebellion well the answer comes from the comes from the book that you that you've been reading. The first night, I introduced us to this strange new world that that you're living in, and then Mark came along and showed us the way that it all started with this inward turn toward the the psychologized self. 
That's where society turned from this objective external criteria found outside where we're responders to something. We're responders to, to truth. We're responders to logic, to natural law. And it turned inward to a subjective authority where the, the true you is found in here, found in, in, in self. And then Tim came along and talked about how there was the development of that, the underpinnings of that teaching you know, leaked into society, into education and other, otherwise, how, how that developed within society with Rousseau and the Romantics and then Karl Marx. And he reminded us that, that, that uh, it wasn't that these, these philosophers created these, these concepts. Uh, they simply articulated what was already happening in culture. So they gave words to, to the development, which then in turn fueled the movement because we, 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 we have peer pressure and we're like sheep. We, 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 we gather together. Tonight, I'm going to tell you how it turned in a sexualized direction with, with Sigmund Freud, and then how self or sex became the definition of self, and then how politics became centered on sex with a, a man named Wilhelm uh, Reich. Chapter 4 in the book is titled Sexualizing Psychology and Politicizing Sex. And again, even though I was assigned this, all jokes aside, it's a pivotal chapter for, for you to be able to, to grasp. And I hope you, you, you understand how, as society, we, we have moved, if you hope to understand how we have moved, from shunning deviant expressions of sexuality to being asked to accept someone's personal proclivities to now demanding that you, that you embrace someone's personal proclivities yourself and even applaud them to criminalizing thinking or speaking anything to the, to the contrary. Chapter 4 helps explain how we made that leap, hence the, the, the title. And before we dive in, let me remind you again of just what we have, what we've already learned. This was from Ryan Anderson. You could summarize, he said in the foreword, you could summarize Truman's book as an account of how the person became a self, and the self became sexualized, and then sex became politicized. And self, the term self used in the, in the book, simply means who a person is, their perceived identity, who I perceive I am, the inward part of a person, their, their inward life. It's, it's how a person would answer the question, who am I? And that answer, whatever they would answer, is their identity. And that has changed dramatically in, in our society. Hence this, this strange new, new world. And as you read the book or even listen to the lectures, um, you know, if, if the French names, Rousseau, or the psychobabble just confuses you, it's really quite simple to follow. Anderson argues that up until Sigmund Freud, which was just a few hundred years ago, psychology, psychiatry is the youngest of sciences. It's only a few hundred years old, 300 or so. Up until that point, individuals saw themselves as a, as a creation of God. And they, they sought to conform themselves to, to truth, to, again, some objective moral standard. And the pursuit of, of life, eternal life, the good life, uh, just as it was written in our, expressed in our Constitution, um, the pursuit of happiness, there was a pursuit of something out, outside of you. 
And notice everything in that, in that list is objective. It's fact-based. And it's, it's even theological. Uh, they're external. They're outside of a person. A person is responding. A person is a responder. And in contrast to that, the, the inward man, I mean, the, the, the modern man looks inward. He defines himself based on how he feels, his personal desires, his subjective internal impulses. And then he seeks to be true to himself. I just, just have to speak my truth. I have to be true to myself. That's what is packaged in, in all of that, that language. And of course, everyone has thoughts and feelings and desires. God created you to have thoughts and feelings and desires. The point is, rather than conforming those feelings and then the actions that follow those desires to some objective moral standard, like, like the Bible or God, man's inner life then becomes, now becomes in modern man the source of truth. And then that must be expressed. It's what the book called expressive individualism, which means that people seek to give expression to their individual inner lives. And if you don't think that people enjoy giving expression to their individual inner lives, then you haven't been on social media uh, for, for a while. I mean, some of the most interpersonal things that you can imagine is placed out there for the whole world to see. And that's rather than seeing themselves as embedded in communities bound by law, bound by natural law, bound by supernatural law. Authenticity is, is, my, is based on my inner feelings rather than some adherence to transcendent truths as the, as the goal. It's not about how you conform yourself to God or conform yourself to the good of society or objective reality, it's how you're true to yourself and your, your own feelings. Or to say it simply, therapy has replaced theology. And you are your own therapist nowadays. You become the God that you now live for. You make the rules. And others are then supposed to help you worship yourself. I mean, if you really cook society down, that's, that's where... It's at. And at the arrival of Sigmund Freud in modern psychology, this, this therapeutic self becomes sexualized. So after Karl Marx, through a man named Wilhelm Reich, the sexualized self, which Freud brings, Reich turns it into the, into the political realm. Ryan Anderson, I think, was very helpful in this quote. I know it's small, so just try to follow along with me here or listen. He says, whereas the, the, the most of human history, our sexual embodiment was, rather, was a rather uninterested given, allowing us to unite conjugally and form families, the modern therapeutic turn inward counsels people to be true to their inner sexual desires. What was once simply self-evident that a boy should grow up to be a man, to become a husband, and assume responsibilities of a father, now entails a search to discover the inner truth about gender identity and sexual orientation based on emotion and will rather than nature or reason. He goes on to say, that's why historically one's gender identity was determined by, by one's biological sex. 
as was one's sexual orientation. A male's identity was a man. And he was oriented by nature and reason to unite with, with a woman, regardless of what his fallen desires in, might incline him to do. Now, that doesn't mean that there, there wasn't sexual immorality. That doesn't mean that there wasn't homosexuality. That doesn't mean that there were all kinds of perversions uh, uh, that, that, that don't even relate to the same sex. You can just read Leviticus and find that the sexual perversions that are in our society were there all the way back in the time of Moses, and the Bible speaks about those. But society as a whole, what, what would be acceptable? What would actually define these things? What would be the guiding truths that, truths that, that people would follow? That, that has changed dramatically. So a male's identity was a man, and he was oriented by nature and reason to unite with a woman, regardless of what his fallen desires might incline. But... Sigmund Freud comes along, and he taught that our sexuality is our deepest and most important inner truth. As, a, as the modern expressive individualism says. And politics is about the promotion of what matters most in life. Politics is just a promotion of what matters to people, what, what organizes uh, and, uh, and, and, and animates society a, a, as a whole. And so it's inevitable then that sex becomes politicized. Where culture used to cultivate virtue and made families and religion flourish, now the law is used to suppress those institutions because they stand in the way of sexual authenticity. They stand in the way of of the inner man now expressing himself, of the inner woman. Um, and politics now seeks to create a world where it's safe and free from criticism to follow those sexual desires. That's a good explanation of where all the push to redefine marriage came from. Truman reminds us it's not about hospital visits and tax returns. It's about power and oppression a new worldview must conquer the old one. And the old worldview was rooted in objective truth and natural law. It was rooted in the, in the Reformation or what we would call Judeo-Christian ethics. It was rooted in the Bible. And a new worldview now must conquer the old one. One that says who you are and what you are is now based on yourself, whatever self is, which is now defined internally by how you feel. And what you desire, what you as an individual desire. Nothing is fixed or objective. And so gender expression can be fluid. Your sexual orientation can be fluid because you're untethered from anything. And it's only what's inside of you that, that defines these types of, of things. And the next link in the chain that pulls this septic tank train along is, is the father of modern psychology, Sigmund, Sigmund Freud. Now... I think I, there's a picture of him actually right there. I think I have another one here. Yeah. Here he is holding his stogie over there. Now, I'm sure you've probably heard of Sigmund Freud, and you probably know that he's weird, but you have no idea how weird he is. Um, Sigmund Freud, who guided much of the basis of modern, uh, the modern psychiatric movement, was a complete pervert. Um, he was obsessed with sex. 
sex in the most perverted kinds of ways. Everything for him was about sex, ultimately, sexual fulfillment, fulfillment, sexual desires. He defined himself as a complete, completely godless Jew. He, he, was a, he was a Jewish person, and he was also described himself as a hopeless pagan. It was his own self-assessment. He was so obsessed with sexuality that that's how he defined happiness. If you would ask Sigmund Freud, what is happiness, he would say sexual fulfillment. Now, of course, sex is a gift from God for sure, and it's pleasurable. In fact, the Bible says that the marriage bed is undefiled before God. It's a wonderful gift that the Lord has given to humanity, and He created it, and He created it, he created it good. It's from the garden on. But if that, if sex, is the ultimate definition of happiness, then we have a pitiful existence. Freud's theory was, though, sex is the foundation of happiness and the structure of civilization. What makes civilization tick? Freud would say, if you would boil it down, it's actually what makes people happy. And what makes people happy? What, what makes human beings tick? Well, everybody is inflamed or has some type of sexual desires. Not God. The structure of civilization and the foundation of happiness is not God or law or family, but pleasure. And so for Freud, there was no such thing as a moral standard or structure. He didn't believe in God. That was all just uh, fictional stuff. Freud did think that it had some value. Freud said the value of church or the Bible was, was to actually tamp down human sexuality. I mean, again, you have a man who is, who's unconverted, and he is cultivating all of the nastiness in his heart in these sexual desires. And so Freud said, if there wasn't such thing as law or civilization or the church or people preaching the Bible, none of that's true. If we didn't have that, people would be running around just sex-crazed, and nobody would go to work, and nothing would, would the, the structure of society would fall apart. So he, that was the extent of, of, of what he believed that uh, was the purpose of, uh, of the church, or the value of, of, of the church. Freud said the pursuit of happiness is what we all strive for, and happiness is found in unrestrained sexual desire and then fulfillment of that. Happiness defined by Freud in its simplest form was seeking pleasure and avoiding pain. And in his mind, sex was where the greatest pleasure is found, and so sexual pleasure is the end goal. Or to say it another way, from our earlier chapters, the way Freud would define self is your sexual desires. What you desire is who you are. The fulfilled life, then, according to Freud, is a sexually fulfilled life. Does that sound familiar? This is the shift in thinking that gave us the concept of sexual orientation, which is just another term for sexual desire. I have this specific sexual desire. And and if there is no external morality or any other construct that impinges upon that, truth comes from within, within my desires, therefore, this is who I am. And this is what I must pursue to be truly happy. And this is how sexual desires came to define people. It's also how 
You go to a therapist that's, that's Freudy, uh, uh, that, that's based in, in uh, Freudism, modern psychology, and they're going to tell you that nothing should keep you from fulfilling. Uh, nothing should stand in the way of you fulfilling your, your desires. I mean, did you ever think about how odd it is for people to talk about gay and straight children? Now think about that. Before they ever engage in the act of sex, they're talking about that they're gay or that, that they're straight. I mean, how can that be? It's because the identity is now determined by their desires or their orientation. And an inner desire in their mind, it's yet to be expressed. That's what Freud and psychology legitimized. Sex is no longer a behavior of what we do. It's a matter of who we are. I mean, if you look in the Bible, it talks about lusts or desires. There are desires that are in you. And if you stop those desires right there, then, then, then that could be a level of sin. You can have an inordinate desire. You can also desire something good, like you desire God. Or you could desire your wife or your husband. That's good. But, but let's say it's a bad desire. If you stop right there, that's still sin, but, but that's, that's not manifested in action. And the law goes all the way down to your desire, which is what Jesus was saying in the Sermon on the Mount. When he said, if you're angry in your heart, you're guilty of thou shall not murder. So people come along and say, well, you know, being angry is equated with murdering. That's not what that means. It means that you're guilty before God of having those angry desires in your heart. The law is applied to you. You're guilty. But getting angry with somebody is not directly equated with pulling a trigger and killing them. You have a dead body in that case. But both of them violate the the law. Well, sexual immorality is, a, is an act. It's an expression of a desire. So you can have a sinful desire. Then you can, also, uh, you can also stop that desire before it expresses itself. Or you can express it. But, but in modern psychology, in, with Sigmund Freud, sex is no longer a matter of behavior of what we do. It's a matter of who we are. It's just a natural expression of, of what we want, what we feel. That's what defines us. We are gay or straight or bisexual or pansexual or blah, 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 what, what, whatever else is next. Now, it would be bad enough if it stopped there, and it did stop there for a while. Um, that was primarily what you would get in secular therapy. Um, but it doesn't stop there. Because if that's who individuals are, if, if this is what a human being is... Uh, defined as, then that must be represented collectively in how society functions or what we call politics. It's inevitable that once we took this leap from external to internal, from self to sex, that it would ultimately end up in, in politics. If sexual desire is what it means to be a human and finding fulfillment. And politics, then, is the method or system of governing ourselves and our lives collectively, then removing any restrictions that hinders this pursuit of happiness must take place. In the same way that our laws before governed deviant behavior. Why did we have laws against homosexual marriage? Or why did we have laws against adultery? 
Why do we have those kinds of laws? Because it was, it was damaging to society. It was harmful to families, which, which then caused things to, to, to be disrupted. And, and you, you couldn't, you couldn't be, uh, be, be fruitful in, in life. You couldn't flourish. So in the same way our laws before were governed, that governed deviant behavior and were focused on promoting what mattered like a prosperous society and family, politics are just an expression of the people that are governed. And the laws are the order of what they deem to be good. Laws are just an inscripturation, if you will, of what's already in their their hearts, which is why our founders said that the constitutional system that we have, our constitution itself, would not work for immoral people. John Adams said our constitution was made only for immoral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to govern any other. It's also why what's happening in our country ultimately can't be fixed by changing laws because the people are morally corrupt. You ever wondered why we elect such immoral people? Well, it's because they're a reflection of the hearts of of society. And as I told you before, I still remind the Lord, your people are still here, (laughs) and so be merciful to us. But beyond all of that, Since most of our laws and norms in Western society have an external moral basis with their roots in the Reformation, what we call this Judeo-Christian ethic, these have to be deconstructed according to people that have bought into this this modern way of thinking, which is where Karl Marx comes in. And then Wilhelm Reich, who was a follower of Karl Marx. Now, you hear all kinds of things about Karl Marx Uh, socialism, communism, Marxism, most of it's true. Um, It's resurfaced. It's really bad. But if you listen, I mean, if you have read the Communist Manifesto or you've even read some information about Karl Marx, you know that this has to do primarily with with, with capitalism and, and money and structures and those kinds of things in general. That's how people would... Would, would associate it. Of course, it, it, it bleeds into everything, which is why it's so dangerous. But, but how does Karl Marx come into sex and politics? Well, that's where Wilhelm Reich comes in. Karl Marx saw society structures as a system. And these systems were set up by the powerful to oppress the, the people without power. And so Marxism says you have to tear down those things, and then free the, the common person. Reich, Wilhelm Reich, was a, was a Freudian follower. He followed um, Freud in the sense that he saw uh, uh, the same sexual norms. He saw sexual norms and then the traditional family the same way Marx saw capitalism. They were really the ones, that, that's really the shackles that have been put in place by the powerful to perpetuate their their power. So the traditional family with a father and a husband, that's the way that people who were in power stayed in power. So, So Reich took Rousseau's concept of the source of reality being the inner self. He added 
Freud's theory about sex, which is that's what the inner self truly is, and then he combined that with Marx's political theory about rising up against the oppressor and oppressor, and he applied that to the sexual expression. That's what we mean by psychologized and then sexualized and then politicized. So when you move the source of truth and reality from the transcendent God and truth to inner desires, and then you define the deepest, most important desires are sexual ones, and then you say anyone or anything that attempts to restrict that is an enemy to who I am, trying to repress me, then you can understand the modern political movements to overturn everything that we have known to be true in, in society and in government. And the political struggle then shifts beyond the battle over materialism or unionizing or the, versus the company, capitalism versus socialism, to psychological realms like sexual behaviors or toxic masculinity or to the traditional family. And beyond that, Truman says... Once human, this is the quote that's up on the screen, once human identity is psychologized, then anything that is seen to have a negative impact upon someone's psychological identity can potentially be seen as harmful, even as a weapon that does serious damage, including words or ideas that stand against any identities that society chooses to sanction, which explains why the hostility has increased, why free speech is under attack, why liberals who once championed free thinking are now violently opposing it, and why any form of biblical morality or religion cannot be tolerated in in a society like this. But way before this book, Way before Carl Truman tried to synthesize all of this and put it in a book for us to read and talk about, God lays it out very clearly in the Bible in Romans chapter 1. And I want to end by just going there and reminding you of what it says. So turn to Romans chapter 1 if you would, because it explains it. Here's a detailed description of how we got where we're at as a society. And all of these philosophers and European names may get you lost, but all of this has its roots in the fall. You remember the fall was a reversal of all that God created and designed as good. You remember over the summer on the heels of the creation narrative in Genesis 1 and 2, Genesis 3, introduces an event that affects the rest of humanity inside and outside. It affects our society, and it affects us internally. It affects our relationship to God. It affects our relationships to to one another. And it informs us about the source of all the brokenness that's in the world. It's called the fall of man. And we understand currently we live outside of the the garden, and there are thorns and thistles, thistles there. There's perverse sexuality. There are crooked things that cannot be made straight. As we said, in that wreckage, God gives us truth and the gospel. If you put Genesis 3 together, we looked at the four devastating declines that were described there. There was a reversal of creation's order. There was was then rebellion. There was then 
recognition through the questions that God asks Adam and Eve, and then there were the repercussions, the curses that, that were there. We said if you wanted to summarize what happened, it would be a reversal of all that's good that we saw God create and design in chapter 1 and, and 2. The first couple smashes it to the ground, and we're still dealing with those, with those people, the couple made in God's image. We talked about that this morning in, in Romans. The ones that were created to reflect God. Here's God. He's the original. He's the eternal one. He makes things to make Himself known. He makes the world. He makes little humans in in His image. We have a unique ability that's unlike everything. Everything was created to bring God glory, to reflect, to, to make God known. Because He's He's splendorous, He's glorious, He's wonderful. And human beings are the pinnacle of that creation. We had the unique privilege to, to image God, reflect God in a way unlike any other part of, of creation. And we went from leading creation to following the creature. And we went from enjoying the Creator's wisdom to choosing the serpent's error. And we went from then delightful fellowship with our Maker and each other to shame and separation. And that's where all the issues come from. But beyond that, mankind continues to rebel, and God responds by then turning him over to that calcified rebellion that's there in in the heart. Was it because we took prayer out of schools that all of this happened? Well, that surely affected it, no doubt about it. But more precisely, it was because people removed God from, from their minds and they, they continued to, to, to push against that. The simple answer is sexual sin in all of its forms is a result of rejecting God. And when mankind rejects the witness of God, which is grace from the Lord, and then attempts to remove Him from their, their knowledge, the result is devastating. It, instead of appreciating and contemplating the glory of the Creator and all that the Creator has made... Human beings have rejected that splendor and turned to created things to worship and contemplate. And this idolatry, Paul says, is the source of all of the immorality in the world. That's what Romans 1 talks about. And when mankind, when human beings intentionally reject God over and over and over, God then gives them over to their own deeds and desires which Paul says is a way in which God's wrath is currently being manifested in the world. When you think about God's wrath, what do you think? Well, you think maybe the end, when God's wrath is going to destroy the world, or Armageddon, or hell, maybe. Well, God says that His wrath is being expressed right now. It's current, and it is in these three ominous markers in Romans chapter 1 where God gives them over. And he says that three times. It's repeated in verse 24 and verse 26 and verse 28. And each one describes a descending consequence of man's rejection. We went over the rejection this morning. It was in verses um, 20, 21. For since creation of the world, His invisible attributes, here's God's grace. He's revealing Himself. His power and divine nature have been clearly seen and understood. There's the, the, the purpose of creation. So we could know God. 
And that's been understood through what's been made so that human beings are without excuse. There's a witness. For even though they were aware of God, they did not honor Him as God, as their Creator, or give Him thanks. But they went beyond that, became futile in their speculations. They turned inward, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. And they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man. Not even man, but corruptible man. And of birds, four-footed animals, and crawling creatures. Which is exactly what you see people doing today. Running around, having sex like animals. Therefore, here's the judgment. Therefore, here's God's response. Here's the first ominous marker of this wrath being revealed, God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity. It's the desire that was was there. So here's, there's the first one. Look back at verse 18. For the wrath of God is, is revealed from heaven. It's being revealed right now. So what is this wrath that's being revealed? Well, Why is it being expressed right now? Because of the rejection, the rejection of the truth. What is the wrath? Right here it is, the first one in verse 24. God gives them over to the lusts of their hearts. So He gives them over to desires. This is an expression of God's active wrath, and God gives people over to their moral lusts initially. And then in verse 26, they're abandoned to unnatural passions. Verse 26, for this reason... God gave them over, that's the second one, to, a, to vile passions or degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way, also men abandoned the natural function of a woman and burned in their desire toward one another. Men with men committing, committing indecent acts. Now you've moved from desire to, to, to actions. And then in verse 28, the expression of act of wrath, just as they did not seem fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over, there's that phrase again, to a depraved mind, a broken mind, a mind that can't think, to do those things that are not proper. God unleashes them. And now their, their natural minds don't even function properly. And so now there is no filter, and those passions just, just come out. This is like an accelerant for sin. A depraved mind increases all three of these areas corporately. It's a, an accelerant is a, is a substance that, that can bond and mix with another substance and then increase the speed of the, of the process. A, a broken mind without reason or righteousness increases in all forms of, of sin. It's, it's how you can have a man pretending to be a woman as the assistant secretary of health. Paul says when you see a person or a society embrace sexual sin generally and homosexuality specifically, and then reasoning that's irrational, it's a sure sign that God's active wrath is being poured out on an individual or a society. He's turned them over to judgment. And Paul says in his wrath, God has removed his speed bumps to sin, 
as a consequence of their rejection, and he does that in those three particular ways. A person is left to defiling desires, degrading passions, and then a depraved mind. And so Romans 1 says it starts with the rejection of truth around them and then the rejection of truth within them. And then those two play off of each other and then they drag the person deeper and deeper toward the, toward the ground. And the more rebellion internally, the more they reject the truth. And the more they reject, the, the more they seek then, then counter sources or other sources of truth. And the more they embrace them, the more that they're turned over to their desires until their desires become uncontrollable and they rule them. And so all of this is part of the, of the fall. Um, and when you act on those sins of any kind, it becomes increasingly more in, entangling. And then God can turn you over to where there's no governor at all, no matter which of these areas you find swirling around in, in your life. The wonderful thing is that Jesus Christ can deliver anyone from sin. And that's where the gospel comes in. You might look at society, you might look at Romans 1, and you say, wow, God's act of wrath is upon individuals. And, and you might say, how in the world could I ever do anything about a person that's in that kind of condition or to deconstruct that, that type of thinking that we're reading about in this book? And the answer is you can't. You are impotent to do anything, <laughs> but you have a secret weapon, the weapon of all weapons, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ that the Lord can use, and no matter how far a person is or how deep they are in anything, God can quicken them and make them alive and change them. You don't have a philosophy. You have news, and that news is good news. You don't have a political theory. You have a Savior who can wash away sins and give people a new life. And I want to tell you, the deeper that society goes into this, the deeper that an individual goes into this, the more that they're, they're for ripe, for lack of a better word, for something that's hopeful. You think any of this right here gives anything, anybody any hope? What happens when somebody follows Freud's theories? and just gives in to all of their sexual desires, and they have whatever they want. Do you think that actually brings them fulfillment? No, it doesn't bring them fulfillment. It brings them desperation. And whenever they get to that point, then they're open for the gospel. So don't ever forget, that's the greatest treasure um, that there is. And the Bible gives us the answers. Um, next week... Let me see if I can back us up here. Boy, it's going to take a really long time to do that. So next week, um, we have chapter 5 in the book. It's Plastic World. Those guys are trying to pull it up for me there. Um, yeah, there we go. One more, yeah. We have the adaptability of identity. Mike Lowry is going to come along and talk about how identity has then become plastic and, and moldable by, uh, by society. And we normally do questions, but we've had baptisms tonight, and so we're going to close here because it's 6-12.
you probably have lots more comments than three minutes can, uh, can allow. So, all right. Let me pray. Father, we love you. We thank you that we have the truth. We thank you of minds. We have minds that work. And we have a Bible. And we thank you, Father, that we have answers for hopeless people. And I pray that you would just embolden us. You would help us to understand the truth. That that would take root in our hearts, in our minds, in our thinking. Um, that we might just be able to, to state what, what you say and what you promise, matter-of-factly. Let you worry about the, the results. Um, but Lord, there are people around us that have no answers. And we have all of the answer in Jesus Christ. So help us to share him with others. Preserve your people, Lord. Turn us back to truth um, through the gospel. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.